Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 16. It is a high privilege, pleasure, and honor to be your pastor and to open the Word of God this morning. Amen. Thank you, Brother Stephen, Philip, Mark, Newell, Dad, and all the others that have gone before already this morning. We are blessed abundantly. Amen. Let me read to you these four verses. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, that describe a very solemn, sacred duty to that church and to us. That church did not regard it as well as they should have, for in that city rose the greatest enemy of Christianity ever. The Roman Catholic Church. The epistle that I'm reading to you is the epistle to the Romans. Is it possible for Christians by incremental compromise to end up with all the blasphemous abominations and murderous intents against the true servants of Jesus Christ like Roman Catholicism did? It is true. And it is stopped by paying heed to these verses. Romans 16, beginning at verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches... Deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Romans 16, 17, and 18 tell us to mark and avoid. It is a scriptural commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ that we mark heretics. If anyone causes any division or any offense against the doctrine of the New Testament that we have been taught, we should mark them. That means to identify them by name as being guilty of heresy and to avoid them. When we mark them as heretics, that does not mean that we say they are going to hell. It just means that we are saying, you are no longer holding to the truth of the gospel of the New Testament. And we are to avoid them by not having anything to do with them. We must hold a strict line against another Jesus, another spirit, And another gospel that the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthian saints about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I appreciate the Holy Spirit's words, which tell us to mark and avoid. We are to identify that person is what I'm talking about. It doesn't say to mark their heresy. It says to mark them, which cause divisions and offenses. And to avoid them. I appreciate the Holy Spirit's words. I appreciate the Holy Spirit's words in verse 18 that tell us that heretics do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ no matter how many times a day they may say His name, that they are truly belly worshipers. They are worshiping their own belly. And having had several references to the Roman Catholic Church All you have to do is take a little tour of the Vatican to find out how rich and fat those priests and cardinals, bishops and popes have lived off the earnings, off the savings of the widows under their care. They have savaged and ravaged nations in order to build their garish cathedrals and garner themselves with their triple tiaras and robes and signets and rings and gold and marble, excess never seen before on planet Earth. 
They shall receive the greater damnation according to Matthew chapter 23 and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make long prayers as a pretense in order to devour widows' houses. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate the fact that we have a Bible that calls heretics belly worshipers. Now this is certainly true of the church of Rome. One more thing before I take a few minutes on these 17th and 18th verses. I'm sick and tired of the so-called Christians that are all around us in this city that is part of the Bible Belt. You know we have a small campaign going right now to warn Christians about the ridiculous movie that was released on Friday called Noah. Darren Aronofsky is a proclaimed official atheist. He hates God. He hates the Bible. And so in the entire two-hour and 17-minute movie, there isn't a single use of the word God. There isn't a single use of the word Lord. It is full of his perverse imagination Every movie that he's done till this time, producing it, directing it, or writing it, is dark. By dark, I mean devilish sleaze. He's He's the lower scum of Hollywood, and he's touching our holy book. And so I wanted to warn people. But it's amazing to have these little Christian women write me and say, I didn't like the tone of your argument and of your warning because the Bible says judge not. Let me tell you a couple of things. The reason that these little women who think they are Christians remember that verse is because that's as long of a verse as their minds are capable of memorizing. Judge not. And some of them have to stretch their intellectual ability to reach two words. That is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, and none of them have the slightest, lightest clue to what the verse is talking about. They have never read the Bible, nor any of it, with understanding. They have heard this little expression, this little soundbite, judge not. And so they think that two words taken out of context from Matthew 7 1 are sufficient to outweigh 31,101 verses of judgment extending from Genesis to Revelation. They've never read verses like this. They've never got past John 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Have you ever seen the Romans road that the people in this city use as the path to salvation? It doesn't go anywhere in Romans. How about Romans 16, where it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. Is that judging? Avoid them. Is that judging? They don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that judging? They're belly worshipers. Is that judging? They make me sick. That is why we have our church. That is why we rely on the Bible instead of little women trying to tell us God's religion. They don't have a clue about Matthew 7.1. When Matthew 7.1 says, Judge not that ye be not judged, it goes on immediately in verses 2 through 5 to explain what kind of judgment is under consideration when the Savior said, Judge not. Don't judge hypocritically, because that is the passage that says, Don't try to remove a mote from someone else's eye while you have a beam in your own. Second, Don't judge overly harshly because you're going to be judged with the same judgment that you measure out to others. The judgment of Matthew 7, 1 through 5 is personal offenses between two parties. And so we don't want to judge hypocritically by pointing out errors in somebody else when we have worse errors ourselves, And we don't want to judge errors in someone else with too much harshness or we're going to get the same kind of harshness back from the Lord and from others. But then verse 6 says, the Lord Jesus Christ judges in verse 6 by calling people dogs and pigs. Why don't they read their Bibles? 
If I'm too loud, there's Kleenexes under most pews. You may take one out and tear it in half and stick half in each of your ears. It's sickening. Judge not. Verse 6, give not that which is holy unto dogs. The dogs of this world don't deserve the truth, and so we don't give it to them. And cast not your pearls before swine. If you have a red letter edition Bible, can you guess something? Matthew 7, 6 is in the red. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that long-haired, hair down to the middle of his back. Listen, why didn't some of you tell me that Hollywood was also going to release the Son of God a couple of weeks ago so that we could have two simultaneous campaigns running? That ridiculous movie that's out there. Listen, even the world's able to figure out that Jesus wasn't as bad as they've portrayed him in that wicked movie. That long-haired, effeminate hippie, hermaphrodite, sicky. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't look anything like that. The Lord Jesus Christ wasn't white Anglo-Saxon. Even the world has figured it out, and the world is upset, and they're calling the movie racist. Because it has black kings coming from the east worshiping a white baby. It's ridiculous. What's the world coming to? And I don't mean the world. I mean the Christian world. Why would a Christian go look at such a ridiculous piece of blasphemy? Jesus didn't look like that. Jesus didn't talk like that. Jesus didn't act like that. Jesus had close-cropped hair as any picture from coins of that era will show. The Bible says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Why do you want to go watch a movie where the devil is shaming the Lord Jesus Christ? Here we have a commandment given to the church at Rome, which they did not take heed to as well as they should have. And so from that city and from believers in that city arose a terrible church called the Roman Catholic Church. Now allow me to fill in some details of something that I mentioned. And we'll get on to verse 19, and that will cover us for this morning. But in verses 17 and 18... We have given to us a duty. The Apostle Paul has written 16 chapters to this church. He has detailed and argued as closely as possible for the precise definition of salvation, the precise definition of justification. He has gone and explained the case of Israel in chapters 9 through 11. It is one fabulous doctrinal dissertation that the Apostle has given us. He gets to this 16th chapter, which is kind of like an appendix, Because look at verse 33 of chapter 15. It looks like he was about to end in chapter 15. and Because he says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. But then he adds on this appendix that goes on for 27 verses. The first 16 of them are affectionate, personal salutations and greetings and commendations of the apostle to a long list of his friends that had moved from various cities in Greece and Turkey to now be living in Rome. It's very affectionate. It's very personal for 16 verses. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is preparing them after all this kindness and gentleness in the first half of chapter 16 to tell them something very, very important. And that's in verses 17 through 20. That though I have commended all these people, and though I have many friends in the church at Rome, which I have not visited yet, anyone that comes along that causes a division in your churches or causes any offenses by breaking the doctrine I've taught, mark them. Avoid them. Be wise concerning everything that is good and be simple concerning everything that is evil when it comes to doctrine. Let me share a few things that happened in our country in the 19th century before our Civil War. The year 1830 is an incredible year in American history but you're not going to learn it in school. From 1790 to 1840 was what was called the Second Great Awakening in this country. 
the first Great Awakening was about 150 years before that, during the times of George Whitfield, and he was a party to it, and Jonathan Edwards, during that time in our country, there was an excess of religious emotionalism. And before I forget it, or you don't make the connection, we are living in one right now in certain circles in our own area. They live and thrive. They plan and design and conspire to make their assemblies as emotional as possible. There was an excess of religious emotionalism. Jonathan Edwards did not approve of it. Some of the works that he wrote during his life were about the religious affections of the people and why he, he feared what was going on. That was the first Great Awakening. There was another one of those from 1790 to 1840. That excess was people rolling on the floor, going crazy, um, supposedly getting converted. But you know conversion is based on the written Word of God, not emotionalism. It's not a feeling. If you use emotion to get people to make a decision for Jesus, you haven't accomplished a thing except to lie to certain people that they're saved because they did something while they were emotional. Nothing's been accomplished at all. Even Charles Finney, who was one of the contributors to this evil revival, said that upstate New York was called the burned-over district because they had 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 so many false religious revivals that no one would listen to the gospel anymore. Okay, 1830. There's a little boy up there who was born into a mixed-up, confused family who didn't know what to believe religiously. They all differed. He tried Methodism for a while, and that didn't work. We're talking about a 12-year-old, 14-year-old boy. And so he finally rejected organized religion because there was so much hoopla going on, and the Methodists were screaming one thing, and the Baptists were screaming another thing, and Charles Finney, the Presbyterian, was screaming another thing. He just got sick and said, organized religion is, is all wrong. He said that at 14. He and his family were addicted to folk magic, You know, for any of you that have ever seen people go out to try to find a water line or a sewer line in their yard by taking up witching sticks, why are they called witching sticks? Just help. Can we figure that one out without wasting too much time? It's involved in witchcraft. witchcraft. Okay, we're we're making progress. That's that's called folk magic. It's of the devil. You know, looking into a crystal ball... reading palms, looking into eyes, looking into stones, playing with a Ouija board. It's all part of witchcraft. Well, this family was given over to this stuff. They loved it. Grandpa loved it. Grandma loved it. Daddy loved it. And so did little boy. Now, little boy, you know, supposedly while he was praying at 15 out in the woods, God told him that all churches were wrong. Some little 15-year-old... He was a peeper as his, through his teenage years. He used a stone to go around and peep into his stone. He would stare into a stone and he would tell people where they should dig for treasure. And so people would pay him money because he would stare into his stone and tell them, right here, marks the spot, dig. He was a peeper. He was taken to court. But those documents have been so corrupted, nobody knows exactly what the outcome of that was for being a worthless, slothful peeper in upstate New York. Do you know his name? Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. Now an angel finally came to him, maybe while he was peeping. The angel's name was Moroni, and told him in 1823, when he was 18 years old, where some golden plates were buried, that if he would go find those golden plates, Moroni would help him interpret those golden plates for a new religion in America. And so he played around with this for years, and he got a couple people to be his witnesses as he pulled up some sort of golden plates that he had found, made, or the devil had given him. It doesn't matter at all because of what was written on those stupid plates. You know, there are people that have made it their life's work 
to prove that he plagiarized a novel that had been written a few years before him into the Book of Mormon, but it doesn't matter to us. In 1830, he supposedly translated from these golden plates a book that he called the Book of Mormon and started what is called the Church of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church. And this all happened in 1830. He was a 25-year-old by now, gray hair and, you know, not really, but steeped in wisdom and experience. And he starts the Church of the Mormons. Thousands followed him. He practiced polygamy right off the bat with the wives of other men following him. Had absolute authority to interpret the Book of Mormon. Came up with three other books of doctrine for that so-called church. My point to you is, were there any Baptists that converted to Mormonism? Yes, there were. Were there any Methodists that converted to Mormonism? Yes, there were. How did it happen? By not paying heed to Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. There are people that have itching ears. They love to hear a fable. To hear that there were golden plates buried on a hill and that Moroni gave Joseph Smith spectacles by which he could look at those golden plates and and translate them into the Book of Mormon intrigues certain kinds of people. The only kinds of people that it would intrigue are those who have only committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the Gospel emotionally. Because they're looking for their next emotional thrill. When everything is not emotional. It's very objective by the Word of God. The Lord put it in writing for us. Our emotion comes from doing what is right. Then the Lord gives the emotion. If we work the emotion up first, we open ourselves up to the devil. We start with faith in believing God's written word. That's the Mormon church. You know, every one of you men, don't you want to be a Mormon? You each get to have your own planet with a whole bunch of wives to populate your planet by impregnating all these wives. That's Mormonism. They don't know if Jesus is Lucifer or not. They can't tell the difference between Adam and the devil. You ought to read. Their doctrine is horrible. They're part, they're part Freemasonry. They're part paganism. They're part Judaism. They're part Catholicism. It's a mongrel religion. From a little boy that was a peeper. Now praise God for the people in Kirkland, Ohio. They tarred and feathered him in 1832. Two years after he wrote the Book of Mormon, the men of that city tarred and feathered him for his teachings that were so contrary to Orthodox Christianity and for talking about polygamy. He then had to lead his people west to Illinois and to Missouri, and in Nauvoo, Illinois, another fight broke out about men of that place not wanting him around for his polygamy. And he was killed while being held in a jail. Brigham Young took the rest of those survivors west and they found their New Jerusalem at Salt Lake City. The Mormons! How'd they get a start in this country? Because Romans 16, 17, and 18 were not followed closely enough. Let me tell you about another boy. 1830, the Book of Mormon's written. 1830, don't forget that time period in American history. Another little boy was born in Scotland. He was born in Ireland, even though they were Scottish. His father had emigrated to the United States a few years earlier. Thomas Campbell was the father. Alexander Campbell was the son. They came and found a place named Washington, Pennsylvania, and they started Brush Run Church. They were Presbyterians. They wanted to get back to New Testament Christianity. So they started a church called Brush Run Church. They associated with the Baptists. Thomas and Alexander were baptized by a Baptist minister named Matthias Luce in 1812. The Redstone Association of Baptist Churches let them join in 1813 with their Brush Run Church. Alexander was a gifted man, just like Joseph Smith was. How was Joseph Smith gifted? He was charismatic 
and could lie better than anybody you've met. How was Alexander gifted? He was charismatic and could speak very well. His mind-to-tongue elocution was outstanding. He could debate very well. He said, one debate's worth a thousand sermons. Because he and the men that he would train would come into a town and challenge the Baptist preacher to a debate. And he could devour them. Because they weren't knowledgeable enough in the Word of God. And their people weren't knowledgeable enough. The Church of Christ, which resulted from these Campbells, was made mostly of Baptists. And it makes me sick to read the history. He successfully debated a Presbyterian about baptism in 1820. Devouring the Presbyterian, the Baptists loved him. Even though his doctrine was very questionable, and eventually the Redstone Association forced that church out, so he went to the Mahoning Association of Baptist Churches, and they accepted him, and he was among them until 1834, when he formally left. He joined up with Barton Stone's churches of a similar group in 1832. So in 1832, Alexander Campbell with the Campbellites joined up with Barton Stone and the Stoneites, and that's exactly what they were called because they weren't really Christians. They were following men. Campbellites, Stoneites, together, churches of Christ, four million strong. Back to those Mormons, there's 15 million of them in the world. There's four million church of Christ. The church of Christ, they sing a cappella like us. They believe that baptism regenerates and saves a person. Not like us. They are rabid Arminians. They hate predestination. When I say a rabid Arminian, I mean they're a true Arminian in that every time you sin, you lose your salvation. You have to keep getting saved by confessing your sins after you sin. If you happen to die with an unconfessed sin... (laughs) It's curtains for you, buddy. You're going down. The elevator's going to the basement. Church of Christ. They love to debate. My brother Paul's debated them. I tried to debate them. A long time ago. On the radio. Where'd they come from? They came from the Baptists that didn't keep Romans 16, 17, and 18. Isn't that interesting? Joseph Smith, 1830. Alexander Campbell, 1832. Let me give you another one. Do you know what else is going on at that time? There's a Baptist farmer, a Baptist preacher and a farmer named William Miller who got a little too excited when he read Daniel chapter 8. William Miller secluded himself. Listen, there was so much emotionalism going on in this country because of the Second Great Awakening. Everyone thought that the Lord had to be coming real soon. So he goes and locks himself away for about a year with a concordance and a Bible to find out when the Lord's going to come. Well, he stumbles into Daniel chapter 8 where there isn't a single thing there about the second coming of Jesus Christ at all. Daniel chapter 8 is about the ram and the he-goat and it's limited to the Greek empire which ended you know, a hundred and some years before Jesus Christ came to earth the first time. There's nothing in Daniel chapter 8 beyond 100 B.C. Well, he gets in there and he says, well, Daniel chapter 9, which is a totally different prophecy, Daniel chapter 9 starts with the decree of Cyrus in 456 B.C. And Daniel chapter 8 talks about 2300 days In Daniel chapter 9, it's a day for a year. It must be a day for a year in Daniel chapter 8. So it's 2,300 years. And if I use the starting period from Daniel chapter 9 for Daniel chapter 8, then I've got 456 B.C. Add 2,300 years, 1844. Can you imagine the man's face? He was lit up like a Christmas tree. He thought he had just stumbled on, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. 
he took 456, added 2300, got 1844, and it's the mid-1820s. He starts to preach his doctrine. Jesus is coming back in 1844. They were called the Adventists. Adventists only. Advent means the return and coming of Christ. Oh, some of them were so crazy about this march, the 1844 date that they sold their stuff. And they stood on top of their houses on this March date in 1844 waiting for the Lord to come. How could anyone do that in America? How could anyone take the simplest prophecy that is in Daniel and corrupt it for the Lord to come in 1844 because they weren't practicing Romans 16, 17, and 18? Mark them! Every pastor should have ripped him when he opened his mouth with his ignorance about Daniel chapter 8. On our website, you can just type in 2300 days and you can read information. No one's been confused about that prophecy except William Miller and his followers. He began promoting this across the nation in 1831. Joseph Smith, 1830. William Miller, 1831. Alexander Campbell, 1832. Why did this all get started at this time? Because of the emotional excess of the Second Great Awakening. No one had ever had an invitation in a church service in the history of the world. Until Charles Finney built mourner's benches at the front to get people to come forward as if that is some event that's going to change their lives and save them. It was all on this emotionalism of getting up and coming forward. Following Jesus Christ is believing that Jesus is the Son of God and committing to live for Him for the rest of your life in everything the Bible says. It's not some emotional move to the front. No one had ever done that. They invented that, and that emotional fervor of that particular period of time led to these excesses and led to people looking for something to play with. So they got their toys. The Lord gave them their toys. Joseph Smith, Alexander Campbell, and William Miller. Now, nothing happened in March of 1844. It was called the Great Disappointment. There's Adventists. Waiting for the Lord to come. Honey, I've got a cramp. The great disappointment. So he went back to his study and came out and said, I made a mathematical error. It's October. So he strung those people out another six months to October of 1844. They're back up there again. You say, how's anyone that stupid? Does the Bible say anything about a dog returning to its vomit? And a sow to its wallowing? Nothing happened in October. William Miller gave up. I don't know what I'm talking about. Let's give him honor for admitting the truth. He didn't know what he was talking about. But there was a little demented girl that had some serious emotional problems that attended his meetings. Her name was Ellen Harmon. She believed. She believed anyway. She was so enraptured with this idea of Jesus coming that it had to have happened. We just didn't see it. So this little girl who had the gift of prophecy was followed by some other Adventists. She married a man named James White. She became known as Ellen G. White. She met a retired sea captain named Joseph Bates who told her that we ought to be keeping the Jewish Sabbath day. So she told all the people following her that she had been to heaven, looked in the Ark of the Covenant, and there were the two tables of stones with the Ten Commandments, but the fourth commandment about the Sabbath was highlighted. It was glowing. So she came back down and said, got to keep the Sabbath. Guess who they're called today? Seventh day Adventists. You know, they invented breakfast cereal to get rid of masturbation. 
I've tried to tell you that. All you got to do is go online and punch it into a Google search box. Battle Creek, Michigan was the center for the Seventh-day Adventists. Dr. Kellogg's, the two doctors that were Kellogg's, invented breakfast cereal because if people wouldn't eat real food like eggs and meat for breakfast, they wouldn't want to play with themselves. This woman was demented. She's the leader of the Seventh-day Adventists. They number 18 million. Did they get any Baptists? Oh, yes. They got Baptists, but they better never get a Baptist out of this church. Nor should the Mormons and nor should the Church of Christ because we are going to mark and we are going to avoid. There are whole books written against Mormonism. There are whole books written against the Church of Christ. There are books written against Seventh-day Adventism. I could... Seventh-day Adventism. Many of them are vegetarians. They don't even believe that you can eat meat. They think that the mark of the beast is worshiping on Sunday. Do you know what we're doing right now? We're taking the mark of the beast according to the Seventh-day Adventists. That was 1844. There were Adventists that were just so broken, they, were, they continued to have Bible studies for years. And in 1870, an 18-year-old boy wandered into one of those Adventist Bible studies. The teacher of that Bible study was Jonas Wendell. And Jonas Wendell had done some further calculations on William Miller's erroneous date and added 30 years to it. He said it needs to have a generation added to it. How he came up with 30 for a generation when in the Bible it's 40, we don't know. But he added 30 to 1844. And so Jesus is coming back in 1874. Now this little underemployed young man that was 18-year-olds that wandered into this Bible study of these Adventists and heard about the date 1874 and he wandered in in 1870 with it being four years removed and he was gifted. He was gifted. Do you know his name? Charles Taze Russell. He goes out and starts blasting off that Jesus is coming in 1874. He's the father of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Charles Taze Russell. All of it starting with William Miller, a Baptist who didn't know how to read his Bible. And so we have the Jehovah's Witnesses today that number 10 million. That man has made more prophecies and his followers about the second coming of Jesus Christ than any other group on earth, and they've all failed. You know, when you see them in your subdivisions or they come near your door, know that they have, they have proven themselves to be liars over and over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how nice they are. It doesn't matter what they wear. It doesn't matter that they hand you their literature, that you have to go on the back side and look in the very, very, very fine print to find Watchtower. And as soon as you find Watchtower, I don't know why they don't come to your door and say, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. But I do know why. And you know why, don't you? Because every door would go, bang. And so they fake it. Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, Church of Christ, Jehovah's Witnesses. All from 1830. Filling up with Baptists. We mark and avoid. Romans 16 and verse 19. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. Isn't that a wonderful statement about this church? This Roman church, their obedience had come abroad unto all men. Throughout the churches and the countries and the regions and the provinces where the Apostle Paul preached, they knew about the church at Rome. What what they had heard from the Apostles and, and preachers from the Apostles What they had heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had believed it and they had obeyed it. And it's a wonderful testimony. And we want to ask ourselves, has our obedience gone abroad to anyone else? For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. See, Paul was not at Rome. Paul was away from Rome. So he's saying, it has come to me. At this time, he was near the city of Corinth in what is now southern Greece. And so the testimony of the Romans had gone there. If you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 last night, you read that the word of the Lord sounded out from Thessalonica into all the churches as well, where Paul said, we don't even have to tell the other churches what God did among you because they already know. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And so this 
church in the capital of the Roman Empire, right under the shadow of paganism at its highest developed form, with the most religious religious authority and political authority, these Christians were faithful at Rome. And so the apostle encourages them in the middle of his warning. Please notice that. Verses 16, verses 17 and 18 are telling them what they should do to preserve the purity of apostolic doctrine. And then he commends them. To this point, you Romans, you have done an outstanding job and your obedience is known by all men. Gospel obedience and faithfulness are glorious things every Christian in church should strive for. There is a result of Arminian heresy that all that the gospel is for is for you to invite Jesus into your heart. First of all, that isn't even a scriptural doctrine. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, which they love to teach their little tiny children to memorize, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That verse doesn't have a thing to do with getting saved. That verse is written to the church at Laodicea. It's written to saved people. They don't know the Bible. And so they go off in thinking that the gospel is to tell somebody about Jesus so they can invite Jesus into their heart. The gospel is the good news and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He expects His people to do in obedience to Him. And these Romans were obedient to it. It is obedience. It isn't calling upon the name of Jesus that's going to get you into heaven. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And the will of our Father in heaven affects our marriages, affects our child training, affects how we work on the job, affects how we manage our money, affects how we relate to our civil government, affects how we relate to our neighbors, affects how we take communion, affects how we baptize. It affects every part of our lives. And it's by doing the things that our Father has commanded us to do that we show our true submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. These Romans had done that. You know, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 teach that if all you've done is believe on Jesus, you're no better than a devil. That's what it says, James 2.19. You believe that there is one God? You do well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. I haven't seen most Arminians trembling. The gospel's been corrupted. The gospel is the testimony of Jesus Christ and all that God wants us to do to live for Him. And if we're not keeping all those commandments, then we are not building our house upon a rock. Because the end of the Sermon on the Mount is, He that heareth these sayings of mine, and those sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 apply to every part of our lives. That's how we build a house upon a solid foundation for the time to come. Is come abroad unto all men. Look at Romans chapter 1 about this church. Because Paul had told them at the front end of this epistle, and he's telling them again at the back end of the epistle, of their reputation in the Christian world. Romans 1.5, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience. Notice, it's obedience. For obedience to the faith. The faith is not just believing on Jesus. The faith is believing Jesus and the commandments that He has brought to us from God among all nations for His name among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. No matter what kind of pressure, no matter what kind of persecution that they had there in Rome in the capital of a pagan empire, they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and their obedience had come abroad unto all men. You know, the church of Rome fell, and the fall of it was great, because it did not keep verses 17 and 18. And it resulted in the Roman Catholic Church in one way or another. It is impossible for us to resurrect the details and to reconstruct the degeneration and transfer 
that took place in that capital city when it took place. The church of Rome fell. It fell by degrees, as in all sinner heresy. It wouldn't have started right off the bat with Mary's assumption into heaven and that Mary's mother's name was St. Anne and that Mary was conceived immaculately and didn't have sin, just like Jesus didn't have sin. See, those doctrines didn't start off immediately. They gradually developed over time. But you know how you stop such terrible heresies ever getting a place? You cut it off at the first bud. You cut it off at the first word that comes out of someone's mouth that is contrary to the New Testament. Remember how infant sprinkling started. It started with the concept that baptism saves. As soon as you think baptism saves, then you want to baptize babies so in case they die in infancy, they go to heaven. See, Roman Catholics believe in original sin. So they believe that babies are condemned by Adam's sin. So, if baptism saves, that's the first assumption that is made, the first error, then you baptize babies because you want to get them saved in case they die in infancy. Then, you might not have enough water to dunk a person. So, since baptism saves, and my grandpa wants to be saved because he's dying in his bed, and he doesn't want to go to hell, he needs to be saved Well, we can't dunk them. Let's just sprinkle some water on them. Because after all, all that matters is that we have H2O. And that's where these doctrines come from. The incremental approach by assuming an error. One error leads to another error. One lie leads to having to tell another lie. Do you remember that as a child? When you would lie once to your parents and then they would ask you something else on a related subject and you'd have to do it again? So it is with heresy. The church of Rome fell. How far does our corporate testimony reach? We want our church's testimony to reach far. We want people worldwide to know that we're taking a stand against the Noah movie. That we haven't bought out a theater so that we can all sit there and watch Son of God. We go to the Bible to find out about the Son of God. and We find out that he was a Jew. He wasn't white Anglo-Saxon, and he had short hair. And he wasn't effeminate like the hermaphrodite that they have in the movie. And so on and so forth. How far does our corporate testimony go? Are we a united church? Are we a loving church? Are we a Christ-glorifying church? Are we a God-praising church? Are we a stickler for Bible doctrine church? What about you individually? Because a church is made up of a group of individuals. What about you individually? Are you known individually for love, which is a fruit of the Spirit? Are you known individually for a stickler for what the Bible says? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible? Do you hate false doctrine? Do you hate this world? If you are a friend of this world, you're the enemy of God, James 4.4. Are you? And How far does your obedience go abroad? Who knows about your obedience to the cause of Jesus Christ? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves today and answer it. Does everyone know that I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? A consistent one? A loving one? A doctrinal one? That I live a pure life? That my speech is pure? That my actions are pure? How far has your obedience gone abroad? The apostle said, I am glad therefore on your behalf. Every minister rejoices when his people are obedient. Those words understate it infinitely. Pastors do not need, really, thank you, that was a good sermon, We appreciate you. Gifts. All those things are nice. But the real thing they want is obedience. The Apostle Paul said to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2 that he rejoiced that they obeyed not in his presence only, but when he was absent as well, working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. The Apostle Paul never met this church, 
but he's telling them, I am glad, therefore. I am glad, therefore, when I hear about your reputation, I go into cities and they tell me, have you heard about the church at Rome? It just blesses my heart to know that there's obedience taking place. When John wrote the woman, the elect lady in 2 John, when John wrote Gaius in 3 John, in both places he said, I rejoice that you and your children are walking in the truth. That's, that makes everything. That, that is everything. That is everything. I hope every father communicates this to his children. When I'm on my deathbed, to hear that you love me would be nice. But to hear that you love the Lord Jesus Christ and are committed to Him and His gospel for the rest of your life with all your heart, oh, that is dying a good death. And so we have the words, I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But notice what comes next. Two disjunctives joined together. But yet. Did the apostle know about the rise of the Roman Catholic Church? Where does he tell us he knew? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Right. He's very gentle here. He's just exhorting them. He tells them exactly what to do, verses 17 and 18. Then he tells them, I am glad for everything you've done so far. But yet, let me remind you again, I would have you wise unto that which is good. I pray that you would apply yourself to more learning, to embrace the truth, to remember the truth, to hold fast to the truth, and to be wise concerning that which is good. We understand this 19th verse to be closely connected to verses 17 and 18 by virtue of that coordinating conjunction for that opens up verse 19. For your obedience. What kind of obedience? The obedience of verses 17 and 18 in holding fast to sound doctrine. And I am glad that the world knows about your obedience to the truth, but yet I want to exhort you to be wise to that which is good. Good doctrine. Solid doctrine. Sound doctrine. I want you to learn it. I want you to pay attention to it. I want you to exercise your mind toward it. Gird up the loins of your mind. Embrace it. Hold on to it. Hold fast to it. Be wise to it. Be so knowledgeable of the original that if a counterfeit is even mentioned, it will jump out at you like a neon sign. That's what it means. I want you to be wise concerning that which is good. The more confident that you are of an original US 20, you'll be able to spot a counterfeit more easily. I want you to be wise. I want you to know every detail of the original so that even if there comes a counterfeit that is only off in one point, you'll see it. I would have you wise unto that which is good. Wise unto that which is good. That's learning, holding, and defending true doctrine and practice. How wise are you? How much do you really know the truth of the Bible? Could you have withstood William Miller? I start with the easiest one. Well, they're all ridiculously easy. They really are. The truth smashes error like a hammer and a fire, if you know it. Could you have withstood William Miller with Daniel 8? I've taught you Daniel 8. I hope you could have. Could you have withstood an axe in 238s? Church of Christ preachers say, give me an axe and 238s and I'll whip any Baptist preacher in the world. You're thinking axe and 238s. What they mean is Acts 238 which says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And there they go. Got to get baptized in order to get saved. Could you have withstood Joseph Smith when he told you, you don't know what you're talking about. I have my special spectacles and I interpreted the golden plates. What if little Ellen White came along 
and said, try my grape nuts. I hope that you're all wiser than that. I hope that you have a pastor that rotates through the whole counsel of God and covers all the ancient landmarks so that we are knowledgeable enough that if somebody were to raise their voice in this church, it would jump out like a neon sign. Right. Mm-hmm. I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Now he's used simple in a negative way in verse 18. Here he uses it in a positive way. Look at in verse 18, the last clause of the verse that these false teachers, heretics, use good words and fair speeches. Of course, they sound good. The devil sounds good. Pope Frank sounds good. Jack the Ripper sounded good during the daytime. He just was a bad boy at night. Good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. A simple person is one who isn't altogether mentally. They're weak intellectually. They're weak in applying themselves to learn something. They're kind of stupid. They're, they're ignorant. They're not taught well. They don't have a real desire or a real ability to grasp truth and hold it fast. They're vulnerable. They're silly. They're called silly women in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, who are the easiest prey for false teachers, just like Eve was the easiest prey for Satan in the Garden of Eden. But in verse 19, he says, I would have you simple concerning evil. That means no mental desire, no mental effort, no mental involvement toward evil. It does not mean that you are totally ignorant. It just means that you are simple. I don't care about that. I don't care about that. I'm not interested in that. I don't know what you're talking about when somebody comes up with something that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible tells us that Paul... And the Lord Jesus Christ would not have us to be ignorant concerning Satan's devices. Does it say that in the yeah. Bible? Amen. So, so do you think you can remember that? Maybe by putting 2 Corinthians 2.11 beside this word simple so that you don't let somebody take this word simple and run it off like whenever, the, whenever he gets up there and preaches against Seventh-day Adventism, Mormonism, and the Church of Christ, and William Miller, I think that he's violating Romans 16 and verse 19 where it says to be simple concerning evil. Then why do I have Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude chapter 1, both of which describe the character and the false doctrines of false teachers? Why do I have Paul telling Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 2 that Hymenaeus and Philetus were guilty of what doctrine? Should we say it out loud? Saying that the resurrection was past. Should we be ignorant of that? Or does this word simple mean not exercising our minds, being deficient in knowledge, not wanting to embrace or learn or get involved in false doctrine. It's not saying to be ignorant of it because in order to teach and defend the truth, you need to know your enemies to a certain degree. It It means having little ability, little interest, or little effort in hearing heretics. It is describing cooperating or experimental simplicity toward error. It means being deficient in active knowledge or participation in any divisions or offenses. We should have no ability, no inclination, no interest, or no effort to allow or accommodate any error. But we should know where errors are made. Should we know what eternal sonship is so that we can combat it with incarnate sonship? Should we know what transubstantiation is so that we can explain the error of the Catholics about their Mass? But to be simple toward it means not to get involved in it, not to entertain thoughts about it, not to want to delve into it with the possibility that maybe it could have just a slight chance of being right. It's to be simple concerning it. And so we have the 19th verse. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. That is my prayer for this church. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet, but yet, though you have done well, And though I have just given you the instructions in verses 17 and 18 to preserve the integrity of your church, but yet I still want to exhort you further. I would have you to be wise concerning that which is good. We want to know the doctrine of the Bible as thoroughly as we can learn it. And we want to be simple without being involved, active, embracing, getting close to error, false doctrine that is out there. All we need is a little bit of knowledge, and that's why I don't spend series preaching to you about the errors of the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
I have never done that in 30 years. To me, it's a waste of time. I want you to know the true doctrine of Jesus Christ so that when they open their mouths, that's not right. Because it pops up, it just jumps up at you. The preservation of our church depends on vigilance of all growing, all receiving, all warning, and all defending the apostolic truth of the gospel. Thomas Jefferson said that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. I don't really care what he said. The price of doctrinal purity is eternal vigilance. And pastor and people better be vigilant to know the truth and to defend it against all error. Let there be none from this church that wander out of the way of understanding into the congregation of the dead. May the Lord have mercy upon us. May you understand that we are to judge, we are to mark, we are to avoid, and that you should be learning and growing in your wisdom of that which is good. And you should not be wasting your time in learning anything other than what is good. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.